morning. Man, I sure hope you're all doing well. Welcome in the auditorium. Welcome all the campuses, of course, who are worshiping with us and those worshiping online. So uh, let's have a word of prayer. Ask God to center all our hearts in the same place as we, uh, as we worship today. So Lord, uh, th- for this moment in time, we just capture it in your presence and ask that you would speak to us. Out of all the things we've had go on this week, um, the good and the bad, the trials and the celebrations, would you, for the next few moments, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak directly to us? Whether we're young or old, speak directly to us and may we hear from you. And when we leave this place or leave this time of worship together, um, may we be so clear about what you had for us in this moment, what you said to us, that uh, it just strengthens our faith in you. So hide me in the cross and let us only hear from you, we ask in your name. Amen. Oh, man. So um, do you ever um, look at people and then like sort of ask yourself, how in the world did they get together? And please say yes, even if not, because I'm, I'm going to feel like a terrible human being right here in a moment if you don't. Uh, the, the kids used to say, I don't ship that, <laughs> which I had to learn what they're saying. It's, it's, I'm, I don't, I'm not in favor of that relationship. And so you kind of have this moment where you, you kind of step away from a couple and you're like, man, why, why did she ever marry him? <laughs> or, or maybe you're like, man, what, why did he ever marry her? I mean, Lisa and I get this all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the dynamic is most evident when we see people from our college days, you know. So Lisa still looks like she did in college. I mean, she, she really does. And so we'll see longtime friends and they'll often comment on how, how beautiful she's looking. And they'll ask questions like, hey, you know, what's your skin routine? <laughs> you know, how do you keep so fit? Are you a vegetarian and, and unhappy? Or, you know, ha- you haven't, you haven't, <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you're going to send an email about that one, the whole sermon, I mean, I'm just telling you. So, or, or how about this? you haven't even gained a pound. You know, they just ask all these questions, say these kinds of things, and then they'll look at me. I'm not sure why there's a chuckle in the room at this point, but I think you know where I'm going. So they'll start asking me questions like, hey, have, have you done hard time? You know, have you, have you been, or, or like, you know, have you been sick? You know, were you recently run over by a bus? Anything like that. And most of the time they'll wait till, I, till they walk away to ask the question, why in the world did that woman ever marry him? And, and I get it. I understand that and even affirm it. So our, our family was having this conversation about marriage recently. And, and the conversation centered on whether or not people would still get married if they knew up front all the sacrifices that were going to be required of them because they're married. And and it blossomed into this incredible conversation and, you know, moving beyond the changes in physical appearances. Would you still get married if you were aware of all the difficult conversations ahead? Would you still get married if you were aware of all the financial decisions or the difficult financial seasons you would go through as a result of, of, of the marriage? Would you still get married if you were aware of what it would be like to join another family <laughs> or, or have someone join your family extended? Would you still get married if you considered the time, that, that time that's no longer yours, but now it's in ours, it's things we're going to do together. Would you still do that? Would you still get married if you knew there would be seasons where you had to fight for your marriage? Would you still get married if you understood how this relationship would impact your behavior, your attitudes, and your worldview for the rest of life? Now, as I ask those questions, hopefully most of us would say, yeah, I think I'd still do it. Or maybe, well, Tom, I'm kind of working on it, but yeah, I think I think I would. And, and why, why would we do that? And, and this is my point. This is how love works. 
This is what love is. Love begins in the heart. You find a person who you want to spend a life with, a person who captures you so fully, you have to be with them. You just want to be with them. And once you make that decision, we're going to build this life together because somehow we're supposed to be together for the rest of this life. And you'll make whatever sacrifices and whatever changes, whatever challenges that love requires. Because why? You've got something that changed your heart. You fell in love. But it always starts in a heart. You fall in love. You don't get married because you have a head trip. You get married because you have a heart trip and you fall in love. So why in the world are we talking about marriage this morning? Well, it's actually to introduce a crucial dynamic that we've been learning in this first Thessalonians book we've been studying. We start with love before we ever move into practice. When it comes to God, don't miss this, we start with love before it ever moves into practice. So let's recall the journey for those of you who maybe are just coming back or checking in for the first time. This whole thing started with this deep love for the gospel. And the gospel has this power. A historic event happened. A historic human being walked the planet who was the son of God. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel message of hope is overwhelming to know that there is a way out of our condemnation or guilt or shame. That, friends, moves a heart. When you come to that point of discovery, you're wrecked by it. To know that we have been loved to such a point that someone who we didn't even know or acknowledge gave his life for us. Friends, if that settles on you, that's heart altering. That changes things. The belief that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can all now be different changes a heart. We get overwhelmed when we sing these songs to think about all that the man went through as the son of God in order that we could experience heart changed. And we asked why the gospel would be available to people like us. Paul reveals it's all because of love. And he uses familial imagery in, 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 as he conveys the love that's in his heart. He talks about caring for people like a, a nursing mom cares for her baby. And then he says like a, a loving father relates to his children. The gospel made love possible. And now we find ourselves being loved in ways we never have before. We were, we were loved not just by family, not just by friends, but now because of the gospel, we're loved by everybody who follows the same God. So what that means, if you've never experienced this before, is you can get on a plane and travel around the world and find believers there and be deeply loved. You can do that. You can go anywhere you want. You can walk into a church as a, as a child of God and you will be deeply loved. Paul said it this way. We, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives because you had become so dear to us. I mean, is this love a possibility for our lives? Because if it is, we all desperately want it. 
We want to be in that kind of community. But more than want this kind of love, what we learned last week is we actually need it, this kind of love. That, that kind of love. We need it in how we're relating to each other because static seasons are so difficult, so lonely, so painful, so isolating. And yet, even in tough seasons, we learn that God is being loving by teaching us a kind of love that isn't conditional, a love that actually grows. Chapter three, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow, not just fill it up, but then like run it all upon the ground for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. What does... That kind of love, if it's out there, if it's a possibility for the alive community, what does that kind of love we're discussing look like on normal me or normal you? What is the hope, the result, the goal to this kind of love? Is the goal that we'll be cherished? Is the goal that, you know, we'll, we'll be valued? Is the goal to be liked or secure? Is the goal to be less lonely. Paul revealed the hope of this love, where it goes, what it seeks to accomplish. May God strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. There, friends, is the goal and the hope of this unparalleled love the Father has for you and for me the goal of love reinvented from each other, from other believers, the whole purpose. Don't complicate this. Don't pollute it. Don't dilute this. Don't be confused. Don't be defensive. God simply desires for us to be holy men and women. What does that mean, Tom? It's, it's being like Jesus. Holiness is Christ's likeness. That's the whole goal of this love, the whole purpose of this love. Not to be liked, not to, not, to be the, not to be highly valued by people. The goal is to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like. That's the agenda of the Father in your life and mine. Hear it again, because I know I'm preaching, you tune things out, you come back in. The agenda that God has for your life and mine is holiness to be like Jesus. That's the goal. Nothing hidden. Holiness is what the Holy Spirit's trying to accomplish in you, in your marriage, in your children, in your relationships. It's holiness. That's the objective. The Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish this through passionate, transformative, sacrificial, unconditional love for you and me. Holiness is God's plan to set us apart for the things of God, just like Jesus. And we have this high honor of living at a time where we don't have to just wonder what holiness is. We can actually study how Jesus lived and be like him. Only, friends, this is my point, only after rooting our relationship for three chapters, our relationship with God so deeply in love, for three chapters, only then, does Paul begin to teach us ways to be pleasing to God? Don't miss three chapters. He said, here's how you're loved. Here's how you're loved. Here's how you're loved. Why? 
because of what I started with. This is a love relationship. That's what this is we're talking about. Like the marriage illustration I started with, it does not begin with what is required of you. It begins with love. And here's why. If you never understand the Father's love for you, you will never comprehend what the Father asks of you. If you don't understand how deeply loved you are, you will never comprehend why you have to act and behave a certain way. It won't make sense. Churches get this backwards. Christians get this backwards. We like to start with what is required. Oh, you want to follow Jesus? Here's what you got to do. A, B, and C and vote for D. (laughs) That's what we got to do. Oh, you're going to believe? Okay, well, here's the list of do's. Here's the list of don'ts. We start with what's required. In fact, some Christian traditions have, a, have done this so well that we, they have a tradition of being, a term now, of being legalistic. What that means is love became about law. And while it is difficult to judge love in a heart, it is really easy for me to judge law in your life. Do you understand what I just said? So like, you know, know, where your heart is with Jesus, I don't really know. But man, I can sure tell you didn't vote the same way I did. I can sure tell you're doing this and you're not doing that. You must not be with Jesus. Really? So Christians gathered around laws and we formed tribes and churches and denominations around laws. And people have walked away from faith because they heard of our laws, but never received our love. Do you understand? One of my children had a conversation a few weeks ago with someone who's struggling in their sexuality. And that person walked away from faith because she knew her sexual choices would not be approved of by her church. And as I heard that story being told around our dining room table, in that moment, I realized I had something in common with this young girl. I too would walk away from faith if I didn't know the Father's love for me. Wouldn't you? Think about it. If all I knew was what God said was right and what God said was wrong, but knew nothing about God's love, why bother with this? The whole thing is kind of inconvenient if you think about it. If this whole thing is about trying to obey the speed limit in our lives morally, give me a break. Who wants that? That's such a different motivation than the belief that I am desperately loved. And someone sacrificed on my behalf so I could be loved at that level. I'm not going to obey the law because I think you're going to catch me. But I sure will if I know you're in desperate love with me. Get it? You see, gospel changes the orientation of one's life. The natural orientation of life for everybody you know before Jesus is a life that is concerned with self. That's the primary focus of any life without Jesus. It's self. 
But once you interact with God's love for you, and Jesus' love begins to inhabit you, not just your mind, but it transforms your heart, then the very orientation of your life changes from one curved in on itself to one desperately concerned for other people. It's a total change. Why? Love does that. Love changes that. What this means is the love we have from God must result in a different kind of life. Being Christ-like, being holy, means I'm no longer the same. Much as being married means I'm no longer the same as I was when I wasn't married. When I met Lise, my love for her changed me. And it continues to change me. Friends, the same is true of God. The same is true of God. In Christ, you are no longer who you once were. We now believe differently. We now have a different master in our lives. We have, there's a different agenda for our lives. Jesus changes everything. Not because of law, but because of love. And this new life is something God is now building in us. After the first service, I met a lady in the lobby. She's in her 70s. And she just told me about an experience she had this week <laughs> that totally changed how she sees herself. And I said, what was it founded in? I finally understood how much God loves me in her 70s. The change, the restructuring of my beliefs, the changing of my behavior, it's in the context of love. So Paul now introduces three ways we can live a life that pleases God. Chapter 4, finally, brothers and, and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Just pause. Paul's saying, before you read what comes next, you're already living in such a way that does please God. You're living in such a way that please God. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So this young church... These young believers, fresh out of paganism, are living in a way that please God already. What's important to note is their lifestyle would not be acceptable in your church. And yet Paul characterizes them as already pleasing God. He's emphasizing there's continued change in this process. To live lives pleasing to God, to be in relationship with Jesus, he says, more and more. The cry, Paul says, is don't stop. Don't settle where you are. Keep going. Press forward. Paul literally says, literal translation is superabound and superabound even more. Why? Because this is what love does. When you're in love, you want more. You want to love deeply. You want to love more sacrificially. You want to love more intelligently because your heart is overwhelmed with being loved. And as we are loved by Christ, we desire to be pleasing to him. 
Paul begins by saying, the way to please God is to live a life that is growing in love and holiness, Christ-likeness. Here it is. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. I know it's a word that we don't... If holiness is to be like Jesus, sanctification is everything that God does in order to make us more like Jesus. Tom definition, but... If holiness is to be like Jesus, if you've walked with God for any period of time, <laughs> you realize how difficult it is for you to be like Jesus. <laughs> Somebody say amen, please. <laughs> and you know, it's because you can't. <laughs> I mean, you seem like nice folk, but you ain't that nice. We just can't do it. We can't. I can't make myself like Jesus. But through the process of being sanctified, God does his work in me to make me more like Jesus. And all of a sudden, I find myself taking on characteristics and traits I've never had before. Don't miss this, friends. This is the trajectory of our relationship with God. More and more, superabound and superabound more. God continues to do things in us to make us like his son. Grow in this. Don't arrive at this. Grow in this. Sanctification begins when we accept Jesus as our Savior, when we allow the Holy Spirit, when we allow that heart to be in God's hands. And then it begins this lifelong trajectory of loving relationship with him, just like this young church. This is a process that accompanies us throughout this life. And then... We will finally be fully like him when we are fully with him. Do you understand? That's the trajectory. So now, after three plus chapters of God's love, Paul lays out three areas of growth the early church could immediately begin to superabound, but superabound even more. This early church that is already pleasing to God with their lives, he now lays out areas they could improve, superabound, and superabound even more. First, he says, growth in sexual purity. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And first reading, all of us are like, yeah, amen, preacher, amen. We need to get rid of sexual immoral people. The problem is, is that word pornea, what actually is the word pornography that we get that word, the word actually refers to sexual immorality of any kind, including Netflix. Oh, Tom, that's going to get you an email. <laughs> Now it's all of our business, right? Do you understand? This isn't a problem that he's got or she's got. Or he's, this is now a problem we all have. Now we have to read the verses if it's relevant to us. It's God will, you should be sanctified, you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, a life set apart, a life set apart for the purposes of God. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject humans, but rejects God who gives you his Holy Spirit. For the, for the Thessalonians, any concept of a sexual ethic was a brand new idea. They had no understanding. Demosthenes was a Greek statesman during the fourth century BC. So he lived a couple of hundred years before Paul. And he described what the Greek culture was like, especially as it related to women. 
We keep prostitutes for pleasures, mistresses for day-to-day needs of our lives. We keep wives for the begetting of children and the faithful guardianship of our home. That's what this early church was functioning in. That's how they understood things. With each degradation, God's original design for sexual purity was getting further and further out of vogue. And into this context, the call to holiness based in the Father's love and the power of the gospel, God calls Christians back to the original plan he created. Why? Because it's the way to live a holy and honorable life. You were not called to be impure. I was not called to be impure. I was called to live a holy life, which means any sexual immorality in my life does not please God. What do you care, Tom? Well, I love him. I love him. So I care a lot. And I hear, in fact, I hope, I know we have people here that say, Tom, I'm just not there. And I want to say, man, I understand that. I do. Outside the context of a holy life, the biblical sexual ethic makes absolutely no sense. In our culture, this makes no sense. If I default to a life focused on me, the biblical sexual ethic does not work. This only makes sense in the context of holiness. So I urge you, even if you're not there yet, to stay on the trajectory of one in relationship with Jesus. What I'm trying to say to you is keep falling forward in love with Jesus. I can go a long way with you on that. Keep falling forward in your love with Jesus. Pursue the Father's love more and more. Superabound and superabound more. And if you will do that, God will teach us. God will reveal to us his plan and purpose for holy relating. But it's always based in the Father's love. Paul offers a second area of growth. This early church could begin to superabound, but superabound even more. Growth in how believers treat each other. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do it more and more. Are you seeing the pattern? Don't settle. Don't settle for where you think you are. Don't settle on how you love others. Press on more and more. Superbound and superbound more. It's the exact same phrase. Literally superabound, but superabound even more. Keep reaching for more of Jesus and let it, be sh- let it shine through your love with people, other Christians. Don't be stagnant with your relationship in the church. Don't harm these relationships as much as it depends on you. Don't take them for granted, these relationships. Blaise Pascal taught us all that we have this God-sized vacuum that we seek to fill in our lives. Country music singers said, you're looking for love in all the wrong places because we're all looking to fill that God-sized vacuum. You too said, we still haven't found what we're looking for, right? 
You know, one of my takeaways from the pandemic, now that I'm almost over a little over two years out of it, I think I realized during the pandemic that we all have a people-sized vacuum as well. Not, not all people. But you people. You people. I realized during the pandemic that you are why the church has to gather. Because when we see each other on a Sunday and we give a high five or a good game, however you greet, when you say, how you doing? I'm doing good. Had a rough week of praying. Walk by the lobby and get a smile. I realized, man, you're pretty important in my life. You people are. We're pretty important in each other's lives. We need each other. Why? Because sometimes when I feel like I didn't, wasn't deeply loved the previous week, you remind me I was. Am I being too mushy or are you with me? All I heard was, so that may be a little too mushy. Do you know the phrase one another occurs 100 times in the New Testament? And 59 of those times, it directly refers to how I love you. I'm not talking about being nice to you. I'm nice to people I don't even know. I got pulled over by a police officer a couple weeks ago. I shook his hand after he gave me a ticket. I was like, why did I do that? (laughs) I just want to love you well. And I want to grow in that love. And to be honest, I want to receive that kind of love. One more area Paul encourages. Growth in the integrity of our lives. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Well, the Bible just ruled social media out, just dropped it right there off the whole page. You see it right there? Just as we told you, so that your daily life, here it comes, here it comes. This is why, this is why, all rooted in love. So your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let me kind of tell you a little bit what that means. There's a connection, friends, between how we live our lives in love and the respect of outsiders for us. Holy living produces holy connecting for those who do not know Jesus. People will watch your life and ask why you are different. Freshman year of college, I just finished up a semester. Everybody's packing their rooms up. I find out that one of the ball players wants me to come up to his room. Never been to his room the whole semester. I walk up and said, hey, did you call me? You know, do you know something you want to talk about? And we had this little banter, went back and forth. I realized at that point he had a beautiful child and connected some of his life and all that kind of stuff. And I said, Dennis, why am I here? He said, I just wanted you to know I watched you this entire semester. And he said, um, I want to love like you love one day. First, when he said that, he said, you watched the entire semester. And I thought about, well, that wasn't very loving, and that wasn't very loving, and that wasn't loving, and that wasn't loving. It wasn't loving. But I never forgot it because it made me realize that people are always watching. And if they're going to watch, I want them to see Jesus. Now, I don't do it all the time. I don't get... I don't hit it out of the park all the time. 
But if you watch me long enough, I hope that people will see Jesus. And you know what? That's what I want to see in you too. I do. That's what I want to see in you. When your things are going great, when things are a struggle, when you and I are in great relationship and when there's tension, I want to see that love and I want you to receive that kind of love. God is always working on you and me. Paul said, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forget what's behind. And look at this word, straining, grinding, pulling with great effort toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the prize is? To be with Jesus. Get to be with Jesus. A commitment to Christ is the beginning of a life of growth. It's not the end point. Christianity is a trajectory for a life, a life well lived. You struggle with some of scripture? So do I. Fine. But stay on the trajectory of a father's love for you. God has been wrecking me over this lately. And I shouldn't even be talking about it because I usually wait till it's all tied up with a pretty bow and I tell you how amazing it is. Right now, it's not amazing. What God's been hitting me on is, Tom, I know you're disciplined. I know you're disciplined. You read through the Bible every year. I know you're disciplined. You're reading Oswald Chambers. You do it every morning. You never miss. But are you growing in love for me? So God and I have been having a lot of sidebar conversations about what that would look like if I made room in my life to actually increase in my love for him and my love for people. I'll keep you posted. For right now, I'll share with you John Ortberg's quote from, he wrote a book called You're Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. So naturally, I read it. (laughs) He says, You are a guardian of the human spirit. You have the power to manipulate and coerce if you want. You can avoid and ignore if you choose. But you can also ennoble and inspire. You can lift up and appeal to all that is good and honorable and holy. You can remind fallible and finite people around you that they hold their lives and calling as a sacred trust. Allow me just to read it to you once again. Just listen. If you tuned everything out, listen. You can remind fallible and finite people around you that they hold their lives and calling, the one you're living, as a sacred trust, that their best efforts matter, that their worst failures will one day be redeemed. This is all because of the crucified one who shoulders the burdens of the whole human race, who rose again and will come back one day to honor all that is good and right, all that has gone wrong. You are deeply loved. And that changes how we live. So, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you. It's a love that we talk about and it's so evident that we're not even really clear that we're comprehending it. Lord, if we were aware, if we could just catch a grasp, just a glimpse of how deeply loved, it would wreck us. It would change us in this moment. 
it would change the trajectory of our lives if we could get some idea of how loved we are. So I pray for myself, all those worshiping with me right now, listening to the sound of my voice. Would you wreck us with your love? Would you penetrate all our defenses, all our accomplishments, all of our put-togetherness, and just wreck us with your love? And Lord, when you come calling and you ask for things, lies of integrity, sexual ethic, live a life that others respect and value, well, that'll be a no-brainer because we know how deeply loved we are. We won't do so grudgingly. We'll actually do so with enthusiasm because this is the Father's love and it's changed me. Listen, we have prayer rooms on all the campuses right now. And if at the end of such a message, you got something burning in you that you wanna pray, please stop by the prayer room. There's people back there to help, wanna pray alongside you and uh, they'll love on you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this.